as the lights go down, the screen comes up. We're in a living room. It's really dark. The shades are drawn. There's piles of blankets everywhere. The sink is full of dishes. No one's tended uh, to the basic house chores in weeks. There's been something more pressing. Something more important's been going on. And the living room is crowded. There's the teacher. There's his buddies. There's the mother and the father. And the teacher is talking to this little girl. It's this holy moment that no one has the words to express what's going on. Even Peter, who normally can't shut up, won't say anything. Because he knows if he says anything, he'll ruin this holy moment that this family is getting to experience. Peter, James, and John are pressed up against the wall just watching what took place, unable to explain what they just saw, unable to convey the emotions that the mother and father are experiencing, unable to convey the wonder that they have at their teacher. And so as, as things start to wind down, they put their sandals back on, they put their tunics back on, and they head for the door, still speechless. They don't have the words to convey what just took place, what they just got to witness. So as they open the door and as they step out into that hot Middle Eastern street, the crowd is waiting for them. The crowd that was once shouting their names and, and begging for, for help is silent. They knew something just took place in that house, in that living room, and they're waiting to see what that was. The crowd is silent, and as Jesus and Peter and James and John walk back to the disciples, back to their crew, it's silent. You could hear a pin drop. Then someone comes out of the house and says, she's alive! And there's this uproar, and there's cheering and shouting, and, and people are proclaiming Jesus' name. But the disciples are quiet. You would think that they'd be shouting along with everyone else, but they're silent. They're pondering. They're thinking through what just happened. And not only that, what just happened uh, the last 24 hours, the last couple of days, they've been part of something that no one on earth has ever been part of. And they're pondering and they're reflecting what is going on. They've been with this dude named Jesus, following him, trying to figure out what he's all about. And the last couple days rocked their world. They all have one question on their mind. It's not what's for lunch. It's not where are we going next. It's who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And why on earth would he choose me to be part of this journey? They know their brokenness. They know their shame. They know what they're hiding they know their insecurities. They know they're not powerful. So why on earth would this Jesus choose them to be part of this crazy adventure, this crazy journey that he's going on? You guys, this morning, I'm really excited to dive back into Luke with you all. My name is Chris. I get the privilege of being the pastor of student ministries here at Vintage Grace. Uh, and if you haven't noticed, I love telling stories. My brain works in story form. If I have to remember something, uh, I can't make a list because it won't stick. But if I can watch a movie, if I can picture it, it'll stick. And so uh, this morning we're diving into Luke uh, in this upside down series that we've been going for, uh, through for the past few months, looking at what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. And, and, and when we realize what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, how our life is radically turned upside down and we look totally different from the rest of this world. 
So I love telling stories. And so this morning, as we look at these stories of Jesus and his disciples, we're going to be figuring out how do we, as the body of Christ, how do we fit into this story? What does it look like for us as modern day believers of Jesus to live out his story, to live out his mission? Last week, Dan uh, had this great sermon, this great illustration, and one thing that stuck with me is he said, uh, busyness is the enemy of intimacy with God. I don't know about you, but that, that struck me hard this week, and I was convicted and challenged all week that, that when I have space in my schedule, it's so easy to fill it with this or that and, and trying to prove my worth with different things. And this last week, I've been trying to slow down, seek intimacy with God, Not based on every little thing that I can do to prove my worth to him, but simply just because he loves me. He's a good, good father, and he wants to be with me. And so this morning, we're going along farther in that upside-down mentality. Instead of uh, living in this this empire-driven world that says, uh, you know, success and money and control is what brings us our worth, we look at the kingdom of God, and God says, I'm the one that gives you worth. My love is what defines you, not how much you can amass in this life, not how many things you can do, not how many, you know, sports things and grades and and jobs you can fit into your schedule. It's, It's my worth and my love that defines who you are. We live in a world where empire says you need to be able to control things. You need to be able to control your life. You need to be able to control your family, your house, your job, your relationships, your everything, your sphere of influence. You need to be able to control that. That's what this empire-driven world says. And God says, I'm in control so that you don't have to be. He says, don't worry about being out of control because when you're out of control, I am in control. And that's when my power is made known. Empire says, be in control. God says, I am in control. And last, this empire-driven world that we live in says you can't be broken. Says if you have any pains, hurts, struggles, trials, fears, there's no place for you in this world. We're only taking perfect people. That's what this empire-driven world says. And God says, you know what? I specialize in brokenness. I broke myself for you so that you don't have to be broken anymore. You can be restored. You can be made whole. That's what the kingdom of God says. So this morning, we're looking at three stories in the book of Luke where Jesus shows that he is infinitely powerful yet intensely personal. Jesus, who controls everything, who makes the entire world spin and float, has this desire to meet us where we're at, in our storms, in our trials, in our brokenness. And he says, you don't have to live that rat race, that that empire-driven mentality anymore. You can trust in who I am, what I've done, and let, let me be in control. That's what Jesus is saying this morning. Would you guys join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, As we dive into your word this morning, I pray, God, I pray that you'd make it so abundantly clear that we are loved by you and that we do not have to be in control. God, help us to think deeply about you. Spirit, convict our hearts. Help us think rightly about who you are and how much you love us. Amen. So we're diving in. We have a lot of stories to cover tonight. Uh, Like I said, I love telling stories. Uh, If I go too fast, just like throw your arms in the air and say slow down uh, because I I just get really wrapped up. And like I said, my mind just works in story form. Fortunately, my wife is a math teacher. And so 
uh, at least one of our kids will be good at like lists and charts and stuff because uh, otherwise they'd be hopeless because I'm worthless when it comes to memorizing things unless it's in a story. And I think Luke uh, intentionally wrote this part of his gospel uh, in story form so that we could connect with that and see how we fit into that. Uh, so we're diving in. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 8. Uh, if you've got your flat screens, turn them on. Let's dive in. Starting in verse 22, Jesus uh, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? Right now, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they still marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Keep in mind, a lot of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. These are dudes who are used to being in boats, being in storms, and they're panicking, they're freaking out, and they're in the middle of the lake, and the storm comes upon them. The Sea of Galilee is situated in this really cool uh, area geographically and just humor me and nerd out with me over this geography really quick. Uh, there's Mount Hermon, these big mountains right above the Sea of Galilee, and Galilee's down in this valley. And up high, there's cold air. Down low, there's warm air. And when they collide, it creates these really fast storms. And, and people were known to get caught in these storms without having any idea they were coming. The disciples had no idea when they were getting into a boat that they would soon be, be literally sinking in the waves. The waves were so big, the wind was so strong, it was almost capsizing their boat. And they're panicking, they're freaking out, they're saying, God, I don't know what's going on. Master, master, we're perishing. I don't know how many of them are picking up buckets and throwing water out. I don't know how many of them are judging how far they were from land, seeing if they can, they can swim. But my guess, even the fishermen are panicking at that point. When the storms of life come, do we panic or do we pray? They go to their master eventually and say, Master, we're perishing. And then Jesus, and I would love to be a disciple. I'd love to sit in this boat and see the waves go from crazy storm all at once to calm, just immediately. I'd love to witness that. When I get to heaven, I want to rent that tape. I want to watch that and see how God did that. But for now, we just get to read about it. We get, we get to use our imagination, be in that story. And so Jesus is infinitely powerful over creation. It says he awoke and rebuked the wind at his voice, he commanded the wind and the waves to cease, and there was a calm. He has power over physical creation. When we're tempted to not trust God with things that are going around us, going on around us, we need to remember that God created everything. He's in control of everything. And not only that, Jesus shows his infinite power. He, he takes the time to show his intense desire for personal relationship and personal growth. We call it ongoing spiritual transformation, OST, here at Vintage Grace. He takes time to talk to his disciples, and he asks them this question, where is your faith? Right now, where is your faith? Is it in the bucket that you're throwing water out of the boat? Is it in your ability to swim to land? Is it in your ability to panic and freak out until someone saves you? Or is it in me? Jesus says, where is your faith? Because if it's in anyone or anything that isn't him in that moment... It's not genuine faith. It's not a faith that will actually save them from the storm. And so Jesus takes this moment to show them love, show them compassion, 
Yes, he is infinitely powerful, but he is intensely loving and personal and compassionate with his disciples. And so they get back in the boat, and they're going along their way, and I'm sure they're just so stoked to be done with that. And they're still processing, like, oh, my gosh, did you see that? Who is this man that saved us from this storm? And they're trying to wrestle through, what is Jesus doing? Why am I a part of this? And they get to the other side of the sea, and they're thinking, okay, we can trust Jesus a little bit more. They're thinking, okay, we can, we can trust what he's doing. Empire says panic. When the storms of life come, this empire mentality that we're thinking about, the, the opposite of the upside-down life, empire mentality says panic, do everything you can, drain all your bank accounts, burn every bridge you can, and then maybe pray and go to God. This upside-down life that God initiates that Jesus is explaining to his disciples, to us today, says when the storms of life come, Pray. When the waves feel like they're sinking us, when our bank accounts are empty, when our our job is gone, when our spouse is having a hard time with us, it says panic. God says pray. Go to him first. So the disciples get back in their boat. They clamor back in. They go to the other side where they were intending to go. It says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee now, and they've got to these huge cliffs. When Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time and had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And again, I would love maybe a little bit less to be a disciple at this point. Because if I'm them, I'm in the boat. We get to land. We're like, sweet. We're, we're through the storm. We're finally past that, past that difficult thing that we had to overcome. And we get, to the, we get to the shore. We're unloading our stuff. Jesus steps out. And crazy naked demon dude comes sprinting down the hill shouting, Jesus, what do you have to do with me? I would freak out. I'm back in the boat at that point. I'm packing my stuff up. I'm like, all right, cool. Good to know you guys. I'm out. And Jesus stands there. And this guy falls down in front of him. And Jesus says, what is your name? And I don't know if he's asking the guy's name or the demon's name. And in probably the most creepy voice you can imagine, this dude says, Legion. Like, yeah, hair on your arms go up. I'm talking like Gollum creepy, like, my name is Legion. And he's probably like just so convulsed and freaking out because he's possessed by a demon. And Jesus does something incredible here. Since Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Legion was this military term used back in the day for thousands of soldiers. So we have literally thousands of demons that have possessed this man. And they begged him not to demand them to depart into the abyss to be destroyed. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Go figure, I don't know what demons like pigs, whatever. So he gave them permission, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Again, picture this. Jesus casts out these demons from this man into a herd of pigs. That alone is nuts. These pigs rush down a hill, fly off a cliff. When pigs fly, they land in the water, and they drown, killing the demons. Again, I want to watch this so bad, but for now, we just have to use our imaginations. And so it says the herdsmen saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. So they spread this word that this dude named Jesus came and threw all their pigs in the ocean. Then people went out to see what had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. And we've got to think, they all know this guy. They all know he's the guy who runs around naked, screaming crazy things, living in the tombs, bound by shackles that can't even hold him. And they see this guy in his right mind, clothed, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. They're starting to tell his story. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They said, Jesus, I don't know what you're selling, but we don't want any of that. So he got into the boat and returned. Then the man from whom the demons had, been, had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man has been an outcast. This man has been broken, bruised, called every name in the book. He's been living in tombs because there was no place for him in society. This guy was an outcast. He was broken. No one wanted him. His family deserted him. The guards even bailed on him. This, this man would be possessed by demons and driven out into the wilderness. He was crazy. No one wanted anything to do with him. Everybody had given up on him. Think about that. He was living in the tombs. How would someone live in a tomb? Well, it's probably because dead people judged him a little bit less than the people in the city. For him to go to the extent to have to live in caves with other dead people, that's this guy's brokenness. That's his despair. And on one hand, my heart breaks for him. On the other hand, I'm probably more like one of those town people that says, yeah, go live in the tomb. You're making me uncomfortable. I don't want to be around that. And Jesus does something incredible. He, he allows these demons to go into the pigs. And again, I don't know, we don't have time to pull apart how to possess a pig with a demon. That's a story for another time. But the, these demons go into these pigs and they rush off the cliff and, and they perish. And Jesus shows that he has infinite power, not only over creation, over the physical realm, over the spiritual realm. He casts out thousands of demons and says, look, yeah, I make the whole world spin and float, but I'm also in control of everything spiritual in your life as well. And so he shows this crazy power, but then he stoops down to our level, to this man's brokenness. And he does something intensely personal. He says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And if I'm that crazy naked demon dude who doesn't have any friends back in the city, no hope for a job, no hope for any place to return to, I'm like, yes, let me in the boat. Let me be with Jesus. That's the only safe place I have. And Jesus could have let him in the boat, but he says, I have something bigger planned. He says, yes, you could stay where it's comfortable. You could come with me and my disciples, but I have something bigger planned for your life. And he charges them to go throughout the entire city, the entire surrounding area, and tell them what God had done in his life. The city had an aversion to Jesus, so he gave them a missionary. Even if they didn't want him to stay, he sends a missionary back to them. And it says this man went and proclaimed Jesus' name. And later in scripture, we see that God used this to reach a ton of people who had never heard the gospel, never heard who Jesus was. So Jesus takes this man's life. Not only does he heal him, he restores him to society. He restores him back into community. I can't imagine 
the joy that man had going back to his family, back to his friends. Where he had no hope, Jesus gave him the hope of the world. That's the best credential you could have, saying, I come from Jesus. Not, not only does he restore him, he gave him purpose. This dude's probably not getting a job. He's been running crazy naked through the town for years. No one's going to give him a job. And Jesus says, I have a better job for you. I want you to be my hands and feet. I want you to be the living proof of my love in every city you go to. So Jesus shows this intensely personal desire for this man's life. He restored him and gave his life purpose. Where empire says feared. And again, I'm probably one of those townspeople who says, you make me uncomfortable, I'm afraid of that. The kingdom of God, this upside down living, as we're followers of Jesus, says freed. This man went from being feared to freed and living in the freedom of Christ. So the disciples get back in their boat, probably thinking, oh my gosh, nothing crazier can happen than that. We just had a, a run-in with crazy naked demon dude. All right, let's just get back in the boat. Let's go home. Let's go have dinner. Let's go to Chick-fil-A. Let's just chill and decompress and process through what the heck just happened. And so it says they sail back to the other side, and they're still trying to process through, why would Jesus choose me? Who is this man, and why on earth would he choose me? It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue. This dude's important. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I don't have kids yet, but I can't imagine the pain this man is going through. His only daughter is dying, and they have no hope. And Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind them, probably because she didn't want anyone to see her. My guess is she has her, her cloak over her head. My guess is she doesn't want anyone to see her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, just barely touched it, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and she was healed, and Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And again, I love Peter. The things he says gives me hope because quite honestly, I say a lot of dumb things. I'm like, oh good, Peter does too. We fit in. When, when all had denied it, Peter said, master, uh, the crowds surround you and they're pressing in on you. There's like nine people touching you right now. What do you mean who touched you? What does it matter? Let's just go. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman, woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. This lady, whose society had deemed unclean in Jewish law and Jewish customs, someone who was you know, going through their menstrual cycle was technically unclean and had to go through these ritual cleansings. And this lady had been going through this for 12 years with no hope. For 12 years, she had been seen as unclean. Sickness was often viewed as a curse or a punishment. So not only was this lady physically unclean, but spiritually unclean. She was an outcast. She, like the demon dude, had no friends, had no family that would interact with her. She was an outcast. She had to come with her cloak on, weaving through the crowd, hoping, praying, no one would recognize her brokenness and her shame. She was probably so used to putting on a face, putting on a front. Inside, she knew 
She knew she was broken. She, she was probably hopeless at this point. Just desperate for any, any scrap of dignity in society. And so she comes to Jesus trembling. But because of her faith, she proclaimed in front of the entire crowd why she came. She said, you know, I've, I'm broken. I'm sick. I need help. And I trust you. And Jesus said something amazing to her. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her out in the crowd, not to shame her, not to scorn her, probably like she's used to. My guess is she's terrified that this ruler, that this, this Jesus is going to point her around, point out her shame, and instead he does the total opposite. This upside-down living. He takes her in front of everyone and says, you're clean both physically and spiritually. He says, go in peace, go in shalom. The Hebrew word for peace literally is this restoration between man and God, creation and man, restoring things that were once together that have been ripped apart by sin. He says, go in peace, you are restored. Go in shalom, go in relationship with me. In front of the entire crowd, he's declaring, this is my girl. You mess with her, you mess with me. He calls her daughter. He identifies with her in her brokenness, in her sin. And she's immediately healed, showing that Jesus not only has power over the physical creation, he has power over the spiritual realm, and he has power over sickness. He has power over pain. He's infinitely powerful. She came up behind him and touched him. And look at that. Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately. That's the power of Jesus that we trust in. He has authority over sickness. And then he does something incredible. He identifies with her in her brokenness and says, daughter, I love you. Your faith, not your works, not how many, how many you know, houses you have, not how much you have in your bank account. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go with the credentials that I love you, that you are loved by God. I think a lot of times our, our shame and our brokenness gets in the way of us trusting that God can restore our lives. Reading about the demon dude, reading about this woman who's broken and who comes to Jesus in faith is so encouraging. And while I've never been possessed by a demon to run naked down a hill and throw myself at the feet of Jesus, some of the things I've done might rival that. And Jesus says, daughter, son, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, go in shalom, this intensely personal desire. And he declares her publicly and physically clean. He says, now you're allowed back into society. Not only that, you're in relationship with me. He says, your brokenness, your uncleanliness has no place here. And then I'm sure at this point, Jairus is probably freaking out because he says, dude, my daughter's still sick. He says, why are we stopping? Why are we pausing? And of course, we know that Jesus is bigger than that. It says, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. I can't imagine just the sunkenness that Jairus feels at this point. That Jesus, if you had just run a little faster, if you hadn't stopped for this lady or come back to her or something, my daughter might still be alive. And his buddies come and say, hey, stop troubling Jesus. Your daughter's dead. There's nothing he can do now. But Jesus, on hearing this, he answered, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and James and John. 
the father and mother of the child. And again, I don't know why Peter and James and John always get singled out. They always get to go up and do the cool things with Jesus. Maybe they're the troublemakers. Maybe they're the ones that Jesus can't really trust on their own. You know, they get to a point, he's like, all right, everyone just hang out outside. Uh, yeah, Peter, James, and John, you come with me. I don't trust you out there. Maybe he's doing something cooler. You can look it up on your own. But he takes Peter, James, and John into this holy moment, into this living room where his daughter has just died. Everyone outside is mourning. Everyone outside is weeping for the brokenness that this family is now experiencing. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the mother and the father, and they go back inside. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she, for she isn't dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him, saying, Jesus, we might be, you know, backwoods, we might be fishermen from Galilee, but when someone stops breathing for a while, they're probably dead. We're not idiots. Knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, he said, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So we see Jesus is control over, we see Jesus' control over the physical realm. We see Jesus' control over the spiritual realm. We see Jesus' control over death. That right there is the kicker. That right there is the nail in the coffin. That sin has no place, has no hold on this man, Jesus. And I would love to be one of the disciples in that room watching my teacher say, child, arise. And she breathes life and gets up immediately. When Jesus says things, they happen. He does incredible works. And I don't understand in my limited mentality if Jesus, the son of God, is going around proclaiming his divinity, proclaiming who he is, and he's trying to get people to follow him, and he's showing these incredible miracles, why does he charge them not to tell anyone? And I think there's this twofold reason why Jesus says, I don't want you to tell anyone what happened. You can marvel, you can talk about it yourselves, but right now, I need this to be a secret. You see, in the Greek world, he told uh, the demon-possessed dude to go tell everyone. But now he's back in the center uh, of Judaism, and he says, I need you to keep this hush-hush right now. I think he knew it was not his time for that to be made known. I think that's absolutely true, but I think there's something else going on. Jesus says, yes, I want you to believe that I'm infinitely powerful, that I can make dead people rise, that I have authority over death, but I think he's doing something incredibly personal right now. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what happened. I wonder, I wonder if he's looking out for this girl. In that culture, in that time, death was unclean. If you are around someone who is dead, you're unclean. If you had died... You're not aware of it, but you're unclean. This girl, this 12-year-old girl, if she's known as the one who was dead and got brought back to life, she's the zombie girl for the rest of her life. She's unclean for the rest of her life. She's not getting picked for, for Jewish dodgeball. She's, she's not interacting with the kids at her school. She's, she's getting you know, just made fun of. And I wonder in that moment, if Jesus cares more about her reputation, her social standing, her ability to be loved and to love, than his name to be proclaimed. I wonder in that moment if he's putting aside his agenda for divinity and being made known and glorified and worshipped 
so that this 12-year-old girl can have a normal childhood, a normal life. He shows that he's intensely personal. When empire says worthless, and the empire mentality says this woman that had been bleeding for 12 years is worthless. This child that had died, his friends gave up on her. They said she's dead, teacher can't do anything. And my guess is that's, that's not, don't bother the teacher, he has plenty to do. That's don't bother the teacher because Jesus ain't powerful enough. When empire says worthless, when empire says give up, kingdom of God, upside down living, Jesus Christ says you are worthy. Not based on anything you've done, not based on anything you could ever do, based on his love, his desire to pull you out of sin and say you're mine. To say, daughter, your faith has made you well. Son, your faith has made you well. Go in shalom, go in peace. To breathe life into death. That's encouraging for me because I know without Jesus, I would be dead at the bottom of the ocean floor. I would have no hope. And it's only him coming to me, pulling me out of that, breathing life into me, into us, that we have any hope of being called worthy. Jesus has power over physical creation. We see that in the story of the boat. As things are going crazy, he calms everything. With one word, he probably said, calm. And there's this stillness. Jesus has power over the spiritual realm. We see that he casts out thousands of demons and he gives demon dude this vision, this, this master plan to go spread his gospel. He doesn't wait for this guy uh, to have every perfect answer. He, he says, look, take your story and go tell everyone. God is in control of hearts. There's nothing we could ever say. There's nothing this demon dude could ever say to convince someone that Jesus is the right teacher to follow But God, who raised him from the dead, from this spiritual brokenness, says, I'm the one that's going to change hearts. All you need to do is go share your story. A lot of times uh, I get nervous sharing uh, the gospel with someone, and I I try to come up with this perfect checklist. And again, you guys know I'm terrible at checklists. I have to tell them a story. And so the only thing I can think of is just tell them your story. And more often than not, that's how God uses me. And there are brilliant theologians and and people who practice apologetics who know way more about this than I do. But for us, the average people in Eldorado Hills sitting in vintage grace on a Sunday morning, we might not have every perfect answer, but we have the perfect answer who is Jesus. And we can share our story. And so he tells demon dude, look, I'm powerful over the spiritual realm. I am in charge of hearts being made alive. Go share your story. And then he says, I am powerful over sickness and in death. I have infinite power over sickness and death. That's the Jesus we trust in. That's the Jesus that I want to put my faith in. And I think uh, a lot of times I have a hard time getting rid of that control. Saying, God, you know, when the storms of life come, I'll, I'll try to get the water out of my boat. I'll try to swim to shore. And then at the last moment, I'll trust you. Really, the first thing we should do when the storms of life come is trust God because he is in control. And God is in control so that we don't have to be. Let me say that again. God is in control so that we don't have to be. And there's three responses that I think I, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of us identify with in this story. The first being in the boat. Jesus is with his disciples and they see this incredible miracle and they see him calm the storm. They know only God has uh, control over creation. And they see this miracle, and they say, who is this? They're wondering, who is this Jesus? And I think we have that same question a lot of times. We read the Bible, we hear stories about Jesus, and we ask, who is this? 
Who, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus to you this morning? Not based on how you feel, not, not based on, on what you learned in Sunday school 30 years ago. Right now, who is Jesus to you? The disciples wrestle with the same exact question that I think we wrestle with every day. Do I really believe that Jesus is powerful? Do I really believe that he is fully authoritative over every aspect of my life? That he is infinitely powerful and intensely personal. Second question I think comes from the demon dude. Jesus, what do you have to do with me, son of the most high God? And then even after that, I'm sure this dude is asking what do you have to do with me, Jesus? I just, I just want to be, be normal again. And Jesus says, normal isn't enough. I want you to be extraordinary. And I want you to do incredible things. I think we're asking, okay, maybe we get who Jesus is, but God, what do you have to do with me? My brokenness, my sin, my hidden hurts, my hidden shame, the things that I do when no one's watching, the things I think that if they were projected for the world, I would be humiliated beyond belief. Why would God use me? The same question the disciples are asking that the demon guy was asking. I constantly ask that myself. God, why would you use me? And God's response is, well, you're not that special, but I am. Go tell people about that. And finally, we see uh, that God wants to use them, yes, as, as the living proof of the loving God, but also uh, don't trouble the teacher. As Jesus is walking to Jairus' house, they say, hey, your daughter's dead. It's not worth it. He can't do it. Again, I think we, we believe the lie far too often that Jesus can't actually do certain things, that God is only, only sovereign, only powerful enough to accomplish certain things. But when the storms of life get too big, when the waves are crashing in our boat, we try to exhaust every option because we don't actually believe that Jesus is authoritative over everything. But I say, that's a, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Jesus wants us to bother him. In the best way possible, Jesus wants us to petition him for every difficult thing we're going through in life and trusting him that he has control over everything. God is in control so that we don't have to be. Let that sink in. God is in control over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, even over death, over salvation, over life, so that we don't have to be. That brings shalom. That brings peace. We can go in that peace. One of my favorite theologians, Charles Spurgeon, says it like this, Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. We don't believe in a Jesus who can't calm storms. We don't believe in a Jesus who can't exercise demons. We don't believe in a Jesus who doesn't have authority over death. We believe in a Jesus who is over everything and is intentionally pursuing every single one of us. God is in control so that we don't have to be. I want us to take a couple minutes and I want us to, whatever it takes, close your eyes, bow your heads, however, however you need to get alone with Jesus. Take a couple minutes and think through what are the areas of my heart? What are the areas of my life, the things going on, the job, the boss, the relationship, the family member, X, Y, Z, whatever it is that's going on in your life, that you say, God, I, I'm just not trusting you in this. 
I'm not actually believing and living in an upside-down way that shows that you are in control of this. So take a couple minutes and just ask the Holy Spirit, reveal the areas of my life that I'm not letting you control, not relinquishing control. God, please reveal the areas of our life that we're not trusting you in. It's easy to say we believe you're in control, but it's harder to actually live that upside-down way. God, what areas of our life are we not fully trusting you with? As he's revealing those areas of your life, whether hidden or made known, as he's calling you to let go of control, to trust him, whether it's something physically in this world, whether it's something spiritual in this world, whether it's your own heart, someone you just desperately want to know Jesus, or the own relationship you're wrestling through, whether it's as serious as death, whatever it is that God's bringing to mind, I want us to meditate on the fact that God is is sovereignly in control over every aspect of creation. He makes the entire world spin and float. He has this passionate desire for us to trust him, for us to know him more intimately and more deeply because he calls us sons and daughters. God is in control so that we don't have to be. God, let that sink into our hearts.